Well, good morning. I bring you greetings from North Carolina where it's like 50 degrees warmer right now. So that's why I'm wearing my grandmother's sweater because she wanted me to stay warm. So glad to be here with you today. For years, we have asked some of the most important questions through song. Can you feel the love tonight or this morning? Will you still love me tomorrow? How can you mend a broken heart? Who let the dogs out? And finally, what if God was one of us? I don't know if you remember that song, What If God Was One of Us. I don't know a lot about that love stuff. I don't know about those loose dogs. But I can answer that last question. Maybe you remember the song. It was really big. I can't quote Latin like Aaron White, but I can, I can quote 90s songs, lyrics pretty good. So I'll stick with what I know. The song had a pretty cool guitar lick, had some good vocals. But the theology, unsurprising, was a bit lacking. I don't think it was really meant to be some big religious statement in the end. Um, but it was popular because it, was a good, it sounded good, but the nature of the question was interesting for people. What if God was one of us? But like the other songs, people got tired of wondering if there would be love tomorrow. People got tired of looking for the dogs. And people got tired of really wondering, what if God was one of us? Because if they really wanted to know, they would not have had to look very long or very far. The answer to that question is really at the heart of the Bible. It's at the heart of the gospel. It's at the heart of the Christian faith. And those who know the Bible know that God did become one of us. Jesus, the eternal son of God, he took on human flesh and he became like us. Many unbelievers and skeptics would would readily accept the reality of Jesus' humanity. That they would admit that Jesus was a man that maybe exemplified love and kindness and peace and all these good things that we should aspire to but they would probably balk at the claim that Jesus is God. They can accept his humanity, but not his deity. I would argue Christians, on the other hand, have little trouble with the deity of Christ. We can read the Gospels. We see his divine nature everywhere. We read of his glory at the transfiguration. Maybe we can even picture him now sitting on his throne, ruling over everything. We might not struggle with his deity, but I would argue that a lot of Christians fail to truly understand and articulate and apply his humanity. There were those in the early church who outright denied the teaching that Jesus was fully human. It's a heresy known as docetism, which comes from a Greek word meaning to seem. So Jesus seemed to be human, or he appeared that way, but he really wasn't like us after all. And it's kind of like that Jesus was like Superman. He, He looked like other people, but in reality he was from somewhere else, from a distant place, And he didn't really share the same struggles, the same trials, the same weaknesses that we experience. The Apostle John warned against that kind of teaching in 2 John, telling us not to to accept anybody into our home, into the church, who denies that Jesus came in the flesh. But I was speaking to a group of people this morning that I'm pretty sure nobody's going to go that far today. But I think that many of us might be more comfortable with Jesus' transcendence than his eminence. We might be more used to his otherness than his likeness to us. Why do you think that is? Maybe, maybe more importantly, why does it matter? Why does the humanity of Jesus matter? I don't say any of that to downplay the importance of his deity, right? That's a really big deal. How you answer that question has eternal, everlasting consequences. But when it comes to his humanity, I think we often downplay it a little bit. We might be so tempted to emphasize his deity that we make him less human than he actually was. 
We make him so other that his nearness to us doesn't pervade our lives like it's supposed to. And I say all that too to say just that the interplay of Jesus' humanity and his deity isn't always easy to understand, right? The Bible teaches that Jesus had two natures and one person. It's called the hypostatic union. It's a theological term used to describe the substance of Jesus' person. It teaches that he, he took on human flesh, and when he did so, he didn't lose his deity. He added humanity to his deity. His divine nature always existed, has always existed, will always exist. But at the incarnation, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus added to his person a human nature. So one person, two natures. Jesus was not partially human. He was not partially God. He was always fully God. And now he is fully man too, right? So he added humanity to his person. And when he did so, he did it forever. So Jesus is still human today. All of the theology is taught in the Bible. It's all in the Bible. It's been taught by the church for thousands of years. You can read it how it was articulated in different creeds, in the Athanasian Creed, in the Westminster Confession of Faith. So church councils and confessions and creeds have labored hard for years to pull all of this biblical data together to explain these things in a way that makes sense, in a way that's faithful, that's clear. And again, I'd bet that nobody in this room disagrees with those things. But it's easy for this kind of theology, especially about some finer details of these things, to stay out there. It can feel very cloudy. It can feel very intangible. And that's a problem. Because Jesus' humanity is anything but intangible. Jesus' humanity, by definition, is tangible. It's fleshy. He was and is someone you can touch. Jesus stubbed his toe. His back hurt after a long day of work. He enjoyed laughing with his friends. He enjoyed a good meal. He was one of us. And when we rightly understand that, when we rightly apply that, it changes the way we think about Jesus. It changes the way we think about others. It changes the way we think about ourselves. And so it really matters. So so what I want to do for a few moments this morning is look at four things Jesus does because of his humanity. Four things. There are a lot more than four things. I'm going to talk about four. I, I want to pop the hood this morning and show how theology is like car grease. Like the more you touch it, the more you interact with it, the more it spreads over everything we touch, the more it spreads all over us in a good way, unlike car grease. So the more, the more we roll these truths around in, in our hearts and our minds, the more it's going to spread into our ministries, into our homes, into our other relationships. So four things. Because of Jesus' humanity, I'm going to give you the four points now. So if you want to leave, you can just leave after this. It's fine with me. Because of his humanity... He is near, he sympathizes, he bears our sins, he gives new life. Let's start with Jesus is near. There are a lot of places throughout the life and ministry of Christ where we could see his nearness, but I want to focus in on his birth and how the gospels draw this truth out. And each gospel gives us a fairly unique perspective to the birth of Christ. Mark spends no time talking about his birth. Mark is really presenting Jesus as as a servant, So the details of a servant's origin aren't all important for for Mark's thing. So Matthew, on the other hand, emphasizes Jesus' fulfillment of Scripture. He gives a genealogy and shows his connection to Abraham. So Jesus was the son of David, 
David's in there. And the rightful heir to the throne by birth, but he was also Abraham's son. Jesus was this promised seed that would come to bless the nations. And he ties all this together to show that Jesus was this promised seed and this coming king that would rule over and bless the world. And in Matthew 1.23, he quotes the book of Isaiah where Jesus is said to be Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Luke shows Jesus as the fulfillment of the hopes and expectations of God's people too. And like Matthew, he includes a genealogy, but it's a little different. It shows his connection to Adam. Instead, it goes all the way back to Adam. And whereas Matthew emphasized Jesus as the promised seed of Abraham, Luke shows that he's the fulfillment of God's promise in Genesis 3.15 as the seed of the woman. So after Adam and Eve's failure in Genesis 3.15, you know this, God gives his promise of judgment in those verses, in that verse. And he, in that message, he tells the serpent that he promises enmity between the serpent's seed and the seed of the woman. The woman's offspring, the woman's son, was promised to crush the head of the serpent, though his own heel would be crushed as well. And that cryptic promise for them is now seen with much greater clarity this side of the cross, Luke was showing that Jesus was coming, was coming near in the flesh. His presence was the fulfillment of the hopes of God's people to destroy sin, to destroy Satan, to eventually destroy death forever. And then we have John. John is probably the most unique approach to Jesus' incarnation. He takes a much more theological perspective on the matter. And in John 1, he emphasizes first his deity. Jesus was in the beginning. He was with God. He was God. But God in the, in the person of Jesus did not stay away in his transcendence. In John 1.14, the word, which existed eternally, supremely, in glory, forever, became flesh. And the word dwelt among us. So what was once far away is now brought near. He dwelt among us. You probably heard this. That's the same word that has been used at the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Christ tabernacled with us. He was the true tabernacle that brought the presence of God to his people. So God's glory is seen most radiantly, most powerfully in the person of Jesus. So this tabernacle is made accessible and visible in Jesus. So when you put all that together, what do you get? Together, you put those things together and you see the links that God went to be with his people to be close to his people. All these Old Testament promises required not only that God would come close to us, though, but that God, would he would be like us. Oftentimes, politicians will, will take up residence in a district at the last minute so that they can represent people. Right? They may have little to no ties in that area, but they just want to be a representative, so they buy a house and they move. Jesus didn't do that. Aaron talked about this, right? Jesus didn't come as a 30-year-old man and immediately begin his like, more outward ministry. He didn't just buy a house here so that he could be a resident on paper. He was born as a weak, needy infant like us. He didn't simply test out of all the remedial stuff. He did it all. And he did it to be like us. He did it to be near us. That sounds different to me over the past few years. We've talked a lot about social distancing. Not at all going to talk about the efficacy of any of those things. Not my point. That, that was hard, though, right? Remember that. Think especially, though, of those who were in a nursing home during that time. Like Many people went months 
without being able to be physically near, physically present with someone they loved. They may have FaceTimed, they may have texted, but we know that's just not the same. But imagine then the relief, the joy, the excitement they felt when finally their son, daughter, grandchild was able to come near them at last. This was Jesus coming near to us. We were desperate for help. We were separated from God. We could not go to him, so he came to us. He didn't just send an email. He didn't just write a well-written card. Jesus came himself. In his birth, we see his nearness. We see his love. We see the great compassion he feels towards people. All of the hopes and promises that God's people had, they rested on Jesus. And those promises were delivered in him by coming down and taking on human likeness. This is completely the work of God. Like that, That's the whole point of the virgin birth. Jesus was not brought about by human will, by human initiative, but by divine will. God did it. He initiated it all himself to be with us, to be close to us. So the nearness of Christ at the incarnation isn't something we should only think about during Christmas. right? In, in moments of sadness, in times of loneliness, know that Jesus is still our Emmanuel. He is God with us. And his lowly birth is a reminder of how far God goes to be with his own. Next, I want to see that in Jesus' humanity, Jesus sympathizes with us. Jesus sympathizes with us. That word sympathy is an interesting one. It literally means to feel with, to suffer with. In Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the humanity of Christ is what allows him to sympathize, to understand our own experience, from his own experience. I love how that verse 2 says, weaknesses, plural. So what kind of, what kinds of weaknesses did Jesus experience as a man, as a human? Certainly, it means physical weakness, right? In the story of even Christ's birth, Luke, for example, says that he was wrapped in these swaddling cloths. Why did they wrap him up? Because he was a little weak baby who needed to be kept warm to survive. But also, it was, it was like a diaper. That's what it was. In his deity, he was upholding the universe by the word of his power. In his humanity, he couldn't control his own bladder because he was a baby. I'm sure Jesus scraped his knees as a toddler when he was learning to walk. The gospel tells us that Jesus got hungry. He got thirsty. He experienced sleepless nights. He knew exhaustion. He knew fatigue. He got sick. Like, think about how undignified it feels to have the stomach flu. Like, you don't want anybody around you during that time. Jesus did that. He experienced that probably more often than we do in their society. And all that means is that Jesus can sympathize with physical weakness. You might deal with chronic pain or discomfort. Know that the God of heaven stooped down and took on human flesh, human indignity, so that you wouldn't be left alone in that suffering. He did that for you. Jesus, your high priest, your mediator, can stand in the gap between you and the Father and plead on your behalf in those experiences because he experienced it too. 
But it wasn't just physical weakness that he experienced. He also knew emotional weakness and distress. He cried when his friend died. He knew what it was like to be betrayed by friends, by family. He, he knew rejection. He knew hatred. He, he knew what it was like to be misunderstood, to be used. But finally, Jesus knew the weakness. Jesus knew the spiritual battles that come with temptation. This is a big one. This is the, really the primary point that the writer of Hebrews makes in that passage. Jesus was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the priests of old were chosen among men to represent men. So Jesus became a man to represent us. And part of that representation, a big part of the representation, is enduring temptation. You may wonder if the temptation of Jesus was genuine, though, since he was God. I'd argue that not only was it genuine and real, it was more real than the temptation that we experience. C.S. Lewis said, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. It's all that to say, was the temptation of Christ real? Absolutely it was. It was more real, more intense than anything you or I have ever experienced. It's like holding your breath, right? The longer you hold it, the more difficult it becomes. Like soon like nothing else is in your mind but just trying to breathe. And you know that it would be over if you just took one little breath. And the second you do this, all the pain, all the difficulty would pass. Temptations like that, the longer you hold out, the more difficult it becomes. But Christ, unlike us, never gave up. He never gave in. He continued to persevere because he knew that this was the way that he would do the will of the Father, was to be perfectly holy and sinless. So let me bring that down a little bit. Brother, sister, if you feel alone in your temptation, know that Jesus, your high priest, experienced the most difficult temptation known to man because like Satan didn't send his B team. He showed up himself. He showed up when Jesus was physically and emotionally spent and empty. But Jesus never flinched or faltered. He experienced temptation yet without sin. His holiness then should not intimidate us. It should not drive us away. Instead, it helps us to draw near. That's the implication of the passage in Hebrews. We do not have a high priest who isn't able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Then what does it say? Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So that combination of Jesus' temptation and his holiness opens the door for us. It gives access for us to go to God's presence, to receive mercy, mercy for our failures, and help to overcome our sin. So in your darkest moments of temptation, know that Jesus is there to help. He can sympathize with us. He understands us. I thought about when our son, John, was born. 
premature. It's a little over a year ago. We spent nearly three weeks in the NICU before we could bring him home. And in the grand scheme of things, that's not a long time. It felt really long at the time, though. But some of the biggest encouragement that we received during that time was from people who spent months and months in the hospital with their children. And they didn't compare their struggles with their own. They weren't like, you know, it could have been a lot worse like us. They didn't do that at all. They simply just reached out and said, you know what, I know what this is like. We were there too, and it was really hard. But God helped us. God helped us endure, and he's going to do the same for you. Like that meant the world to us. That's what Jesus offers us in our weakness around temptation. He knows what it's like. And he offers us mercy and help and sympathy from his own experience as a sinless man in a sinful world. And in his humanity, so Jesus draws near. He offers us sympathy, but he goes even further than that. In his humanity, Jesus bears our sin. He bears our sin. To redeem us, he had to become like us. Again, the book of Hebrews draws out this truth in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, where it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely... It is not angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Jesus became flesh. He became blood, flesh and blood to save us. We know that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins but also that all the blood and all the sacrifice of the Old Testament were insufficient to meet our greatest need. Instead, they kept pointing ahead. They kept pointing forward to a new and better sacrifice in the person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So that's why we needed Jesus to be both fully God and fully man. In his deity, he was able to bear the infinite wrath of God. His holiness, his purity allowed him to serve as the spotless lamb to absorb our sin. But in his humanity, he was a representative for us because the blood of bulls and goats were not enough. A human sacrifice was necessary to bear the sins of human beings. And only Jesus meets that criteria. The Old Testament also draws out this reality. In Isaiah 53, the prophet tells us about the suffering servant. He would grow up as a man. He would be despised and rejected by men. The servant would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. More than that, he would bear the sorrows of his own people. He would be stricken, smitten, afflicted as a man. He would be pierced and crushed as a man. He would bear the iniquity and sins of God's people over and over and over again, Isaiah makes it clear that he would do this as a man. That would, he would bear that punishment. Jesus did it as God, but he did it as a man. So without the humanity of Christ, we have no substitute. Nobody that can stand in our place. Only a breakable vessel could be broken for us. And on the cross of Christ, we see humanity at its highest and lowest points. 
We see the depths of our sin and our depravity. The perfect Son of God bore our sins. He bore the Father's wrath as man. We also see the height of love, of strength, of sacrifice. Romans 5, which we've already read this morning, tells us that sin came into the world through one man, Adam. Sin and death spread to the rest of mankind through him, but Jesus came as the true, the better Adam, the last Adam, so that the grace of God would spread to many through this one man. Romans 5, 17 says, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So it was Christ's work and obedience and sacrifice as a man that brought us life. So again, in his humanity, Jesus draws near. He sympathizes with us. He bore our sins. He paid the price that we might be forgiven. So by faith, in his work, we are made new. We are born again to a new humanity ourselves. The hope of all humanity rests in the finished work of the man, Christ Jesus. So Jesus' suffering, his death, opened the door for a new humanity, a redeemed humanity. And on the other side is, is a full, new resurrection life. So in his humanity, Jesus bears our sin, but it's also in his humanity that he gives new life. Jesus gives new life. Jesus' primary purpose for taking on humanity, the primary point of the incarnation was his death and resurrection. Jesus' death was our death, and so his resurrection, Christ's bodily resurrection, lies at the core of the Christian life. The Apostle Paul says that without the resurrection, our faith is futile. We're still in our sins. If our hope is in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ did raise from the dead, amen? Christ is alive today. Not only that, Jesus is still human today. He lives today as a resurrected man with an actual body. In Christ's case, he, he still bears the marks of his death to serve as an everlasting reminder of his people. So there's still marks of his life, his death, right now. His resurrected body can be touched. He still ate food. But there's a different glory to his body that will one day be ours. His body was sown in dishonor. It was raised in glory. His body was sown in weakness, but it was raised in power. Whereas the first Adam became a life a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So Christ's present state of humanity is what gives us hope in our present state of reality. Because life is hard. These earthly bodies get sick. They're weak. They're feeble. They hurt. They break. They groan. They die. Again, if this is all there is as a human being, like, what are we doing wasting our time here on a Saturday morning? <laughs> if this is all there is. But because Jesus died and rose again as a man, as a representative, it paves the way for us to know and experience parts of this new life even today. His humanity, and specifically the current state of his resurrected humanity, gives us hope as we deal with the pain, the brokenness of this life and these bodies. Like, Jacob knows this, right? Jacob's had diabetes his whole life. 
I didn't sign any non-disclosure agreements or HIPAA papers, so I think I'm in the clear to share these things. <laughs> Jacob's kidneys were shot. And he's got a new one, right? Which has helped, but it's still a struggle. He lives with a disease that will keep on using the parts of his body he needs to survive. He wakes up every day, and he feels the effects of this life, this world, this brokenness. He lives with the sting of death. Maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you know what it's like to live with chronic illness with weakness. You've likely seen loved ones go from strength to weakness rapidly with sickness and disease. If in this life only we have hope, we are of all people most to be pitied. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's resurrection paves the way to our own. His humanity, it shows us what real humanity is supposed to look like. His current humanity shows us what it's supposed to look like. Let me read a quote from Dane Ortland on Jesus' life. He said, His was the only normal life the world has ever seen. We are the abnormal ones. When Jesus performed miracles, he was not doing violence to the natural order. He was restoring to the natural order to the way it was meant to be. Blind people were supposed to see. Lame people were meant to walk. Demons didn't belong in people. Unlike Adam, who failed to exercise Satan from the garden when he should have done, Jesus did what Adam ought to have done, exercising demons from, the, from men and women created in God's image. Jesus' miracles were not supernatural. They were truly natural. This fallen world is subnatural. Jesus is the one truly human being who ever lived. Think about that. The incarnation doesn't give us a hypothetical picture of how we would be able to live if we were only divine. It gives us an actual picture of how we are meant to live and one day will live when we are once again fully human. This is what Jesus purchased through his incarnation, and specifically through his resurrection. This is part of the new life that is now ours, but will one day fully be ours. Jesus' incarnation is more than just an interesting area of theology. It is, is a source of hope and life for daily problems and burdens that we have. The fourth century theologian Athanasius said, he became man that we who die as men might live again and that death should no more reign over us. So in all this, we see the fullness of Christ's incarnation. We see what it means from his birth to his temptation to his death and finally to his resurrection. We can see how his incarnation brings him near. It, it's how he offers us sympathy. It qualified him to bear our sins. It opens the door for him to give us new life. From birth to struggle to death to new life. Our lives follow that same path that Jesus did. And because he walked that path before us, he now walks that path with us. His presence comforts us when we feel alone. His compassion and understanding encourages us when we are weak. He continues to bear our sins and plead on our behalf before the Father. And he gives us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. So all of this is possible 
because Jesus took on human flesh. He became like us. So I hope you start to see this is not some boring, some dry doctrine, but it's one rich with meaning, with application, really with joy. And it's my prayer then that this talk would spur you on to deeper study, reflection, and worship towards Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the Son of Man. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we, we gather to praise you and thank you. You took on our flesh and you still bear it today. We, we do long then for the day when, when you come to redeem us fully and completely. But until then, I pray that we would see you, we would see your example, and that we would reflect upon your life, your death, your resurrection to give us hope, to bring healing, to bring joy as we face the daily struggles of being human. We thank you, we love you, we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.